My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. My guest today is Tom Shea, who served 23 years as a Navy SEAL. During his military career, he served in three wars, ultimately leading a team of Navy SEALs into Afghanistan in 2009, where he earned a Silver Star, Bronze Star with Valor, Army Commendation with Valor, and his second Combat Action Medal. Tom also served as a SEAL instructor in BUDS and was hand-selected to be the officer in charge of the famed SEAL sniper course. Tom is also the founder of Unbreakable Leadership, a learning and development company that helps people lead during chaos and achieve new levels of performance. And he is the author of the best-selling book, Unbreakable, a Navy SEAL's way of life. And his latest release is Three Simple Things, Leading During Chaos. Tom, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, man. That was a wonderful introduction, and I hope I do, uh, don't do do damage to it. <laughs> I'm sure you won't. Um, you've had just an absolutely amazing career, and I think um, a more amazing mindset. Um, so I've read Unbreakable, and, you know, I got to say, I was so moved personally by how you shared so much of your life and the way you wrote the, the way you wrote the book. I, I don't even think if I'm correct, it was meant as a book at first, because what you were really doing there is you were kind of writing uh, a, maybe a guide for your children to become strong powerful and amazing adults. And, you know, so it's almost like we're reading this as your children uh, and kind of, you know, seeing you bear your soul for them and you leave really, I mean, you didn't hide anything from the kids. Um, you know, you kind of shared with them everything that was going on, mostly against the backdrop of you going to war in Afghanistan. And that's kind of what it's set against. And that's where you kind of share. You move from there to a lot of different experiences in your life as well. Um, adventure racing is something you get into. We'll talk about that. But we'll, we'll get into it. I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much for that, that book. Um, I'll also ask you about, you know, three simple things as well. <laughs> you know, want to hear your, your take on, on what you've just released. But man, oh, man, uh, great to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for doing uh, the Alpha Human podcast. Well, the I didn't write it for anybody to read, and I'm not a writer. I, I still, after two books, and you know whatever success means as a writer, bestseller, and all that shenanigans that people talk about, <laughs> writing is not something that I'm comfortable doing. And I had failed out of college in English, so it's it's not something that is simple. And uh, it was not intended for anybody to read in its whole 
you know, compartmentalized, uh, you know, linear progressive, you know, manner that I ended up putting it together. Mm. I was, uh, problem with being a seal is that you're never home. And uh, I had not been home for my children's lives. And now I'm in my final at that point in time, I didn't know it was my final, but that was my final, you know, go to war as a seal and, uh, leaving for it, Stacy, my wife said, uh, Hey, you, you haven't been here very much. Is there anything that you want to pass on to the kids? And before you go out on every mission, can you write something that you're going through so that the kids get to know you? And as I started doing that, I was like, God, I don't want to do this. Writing is uh, in crayon. Can I do it in crayon, honey? So I I had just written, you know, some lines and some thoughts down and uh, what I felt at the time. And, and it's raw and it was intended to be raw when I actually wrote it to the kids. And then the, the original title wasn't unbreakable. That's what the publisher put together. Okay. Uh, I had called it uh, in the front of the, the, the notebook Spartan woman. And I wanted the kids to know that unless the woman in a man's life is strong, men don't really do that well. And that, a lot of thoughts in the book got pulled out because I couldn't articulate them well. Okay. But that was the premise of the book is men suck without strong women. Well, I, I got to tell you, it, <laughs> as true as that is, it certainly comes out in the book. Stacy, um, you know, I almost feel like I should be also, you know, also doing a podcast with, with Stacy at one point because it would probably she, go better. <laughs> <laughs> she, I mean, she certainly comes across as an amazing uh, woman and, and human being. Um, and, and so quite apropos, um, I, I want to kind of start things off with a quote that kind of illuminates what you've just said, uh, because uh, she says, from the time I first met Tom, I saw something in him that was clearly unbreakable and massively appealing. I wanted to preserve this for our children knowing all too well they face the possibility of knowing their father only in stories, stories of who he was to me and to the men he worked with in the SEAL teams. I needed him to translate for us, especially the kids, all the things he thought were important, all the things that made him the man who made me and our family whole. In April of 2009, Tom deployed again with SEAL Team 7. This time, he went to Afghanistan. He was part of the first element of SEAL sent to fight in Afghanistan since the tragedy of Operation Red Wings in June 2005. For a warrior like Tom, this represented the culmination of a career serving his nation, spanning nearly 20 years. So I asked Tom to chronicle his experiences, his thoughts, and the depth of himself. Now, I have to ask you, mm-hmm. certainly uh, I can imagine, you know, why she would want, you know, she would want this. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Um, you know, while you were writing it and while you were fulfilling that, that incredible request, um, what, you know, what were your thoughts? What did you, you know, what did you want to impart? Because clearly you start to, you know, as you're writing it, you really somehow managed to impart almost a manual for living a successful and fulfilling life. 
And I don't know if that's what you intended at first, you know, she was just asking you to, you know, kind of, hey, you know, make sure that the kids get to know who you are, but you turned it into something way beyond that. It's way more than a diary. Yeah, the, Stacy, uh, I don't have, and Stacy says it better than me. So I'm, I'm a, uh, a sociopath, like I don't have emotions. <laughs> And it was hard for me to reflect on just an abstract emotion. Oh my God, I feel like I'm going to die. Like I couldn't think about how to write that. Mm -hmm. And I, I like, I'm a very uh, point to point linear thinker. Okay. Uh, okay. I feel tired and I need uh, this to happen and this to happen. And this is what I'm going through. And that's how I think. So that's what I put down. And uh, from, I wanted to make a point to the kids in the beginning uh, about adventure racing and, and enduring very tough emotional issues with other people and how fun and challenging those events can be. And with the intent that they hear it from me. And then, then I started talking about uh, what, what was going on in combat, what I was thinking about. And since I'm thinking about this, I would love you kids to be able to like the first uh, thought that I thought and going into the first combat engagement was I want my kids to be able to do something like make, give their word and keep it. I call it honoring your word. Right. And that's what I was thinking about. I had no intent to make it a program since then it's become a program. Uh, and uh, come to find out when I, when I came back and completed the writing, there were 13 beautiful lessons that are freaking hard. They're hard to do. They and, but when you do them, like you have light bulbs turn off in your head or turn on in your head, you find out what you're capable of doing. And uh, each one of those 13 ends up being 13 lessons is exquisitely beautiful. Anybody at any age when they can accomplish them, things happen differently after you do each lesson. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I would have had a book like this or, uh, certainly, if someone um, had given me those lessons when I was a, when I was a kid to do these things, uh, do these tasks, take on these challenges and learn these lessons, uh, you know, I would have learned what it took me 30 years to figure out or maybe even 40 years to figure out. Yep. <laughs> learned them a lot sooner. And um, I, so I want to quote you again. Well, before you go on, I hadn't read that part of the book in probably six years. There's little excerpts that, uh, you know, a client wants to discuss. So I have to go back and read it because oddly authors don't read their own books, you know, <laughs> after the edit, I'd never read it again, you know, and, and I hadn't remember, I had not recalled that Stacy had said it that way. And what doesn't get written down in the book is that I uh, really enjoyed war. And it was a hard, it's a hard concept to pass on to people at the expense of my family. Like I didn't really, not that I'm not a good dad. I just, I, if I had 20 minutes, I perfected my craft as opposed to helping the family out. And uh, in retirement, I've been able to recoup all those lost years, but I was a warrior and that was the deal. And she knew that. And when we got married, I, that was very poignant. I'm, I'm, I'm a warrior. If you don't like it, please don't pursue me because I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give it up for anybody. And she loved it. She's like, bring your shield back or bring your head back. Right. I don't care, but 
I like you going to war. And that was a great relationship between the two of us. You know, it does come through in the book. Um, in fact, it comes through, it resonates uh, loud and clear. And it's funny, you know, we, we, we're in simpatico here because I'll tell you, you know, the quote is this. Um, I just wanted to get back into combat. A yearning for combat was growing inside me. I yearned for the intimacy and the smell of battle and movement. Even though something wickedly deep inside kept telling me that I would not make it home. Reading this, you kids must surely ask yourselves why your dad would choose this life of facing death over and over and over. I do not have an answer. Now, Tom, you may not have an answer now as well, but what were your motivations? Because this can this is a good way to maybe start with, because I'd love to know what inspired you to become a warrior in the first place. So if you could kind of give us a, you know, just so a brief oddly story. enough, uh, you don't, maybe there's a handful of people that would articulate this way. Not that I'm great at it. It's just a lot of warriors are not poets. Mm -hmm. They're just knuckle dragging people. So, uh, War for me, looking in hindsight, was clarity. Okay. It's the only time in my life there was just clarity. Everything was clear. Your neurons fire beautifully. Uh, there's no, to me, there was no anxiety. There's just left or right. There's it, not a lot of options in war. If you stay in one spot, you die. If you move quick and you're not, and you're in shape and you aim well and you don't panic you win and whoever gets the drop on the enemy wins and all these factors are very black and white and uh so i i enjoyed the level of clarity but what got me there is i grew up as a kid i grew up outside and i think it was the greatest time in the world to grow up like in the 70s like you could have guns people weren't crazy about guns people in california had guns in the 70s right and it wasn't a big deal. And uh, so I grew up hunting and fishing and, and living out, not living outside, but I really comfortable outside. And I grew up with guys that have, were on Iwo Jima, old timers that were in battles and sitting around the table as a kid, listening to their drunken tales of glory, you know, and uh, I began to admire them. And my dad was a West Pointer and I, I had known a lot of guys that were SEALs before I went into college and, and I wanted to go to, to, I ended up going to West Point for three years and that okay. being a tragic event in my life where I fell apart. First time I'd ever failed. Okay. And uh, that probably should be the book. What you do after you fail wins, you know? And so I, I'm, I, asked a guy who I thought was a mentor who had been a seal, dude, what do I do? And he said, whatever sits in your brain longest. And I'm like, well, that doesn't help. That's not helpful. He goes, what do you think about all the time? You don't have to please me, but what do you think about doing all the time? And I, the guy's named Pat. And I'm like, I, I've always wanted to be a seal, but my dad didn't want me to be, didn't want me to enlist. And you're going to die. You know how parents are. I'm, I'm the same way with my kids. And uh, he goes, well, how long have you been thinking about it? I'm like, since I was seven. He said, then you have to do it. 
I'm like, okay, that's still not helpful because I can't swim. And he goes, it doesn't matter. You better learn to commit before you understand how anything's going to play out. Because if you don't commit your life to something, you'll never know. And then I did. I, I walked, not right out, but I walked out that week and signed up for the SEAL program without the ability to understand it because it was before cell phones. There was no internet about SEALs. Nobody, could free, nobody knew anything about it. And uh, so once I got committed, there was no return. It was just complete that. And that then be the, the, kind of the genesis of how I became a warrior. Well, you know, it's interesting. You say that uh, you, know, you failed um, when you went to school at, um, you said, West Point. Yep. And then it's what you did after that, um, that really makes, you know, kind of like the bold statement. Um, and it, what, you know, it really is amazing when you look at what you went through, because you, you know, you've, you, you talked about, um, failing at a number of levels, even trying to get into the seals and still coming back for more and coming back for more and coming back for more. I think it was, you know, you said that you, you didn't make it through. It took you four attempts to get through buds, if I'm correct. Yeah, what? five. Yeah, five. Yeah. But eventually, you graduated buds class 207. I think you mentioned. Yep. What was you know what was driving you? What kept you going back again and again and again and again? That I mean, where most would have just quit after the first or second time for sure. Oddly, it, the title of your podcast, the, the Alpha, I had learned a, de a distinction called being an Alpha from some SEALs long, long time ago. Okay. And uh, the distinction of Alpha is that there's no way out. So once you decide to go, you either return dead or you return with glory. And there is a problem with that. You could choose the wrong thing. You know what I'm saying? Good. And so I had, that's what I had left, led my life doing. So when I commit there, I, I kill all the options. There's only getting that thing done. And then you see that people fall off in your life and things don't, I've never seen anything work the first time ever. Mm. And once I learned at West Point, fail, build itself back up, getting kicked out of buds, getting back to it. Then once you learn that as long as you can make a promise and keep it and never give up, you'll get there or you'll die. So it, it, to me, it relieves, alleviates all the strain of oh, decision-making. It doesn't matter. Commit, go somewhere and do it. Do it with all your heart, all your emotion, get support, whatever it takes to succeed at that direction, make sure that you do that. Nobody does that anymore. They fall apart. They skin their knee. They go out on a run like, Hey, I want to lose weight. I want to run a marathon mm -hmm. in the first mile. My feet hurt. And then they quit. Well, you got to get through all that. It's a struggle. So I just started to struggle going, I'm never going to be good at anything. I'm just going to struggle better than anybody else. Powerful. Powerful. You know, can you teach that or is, is, is that in your DNA? Uh, I don't believe in DNA. I think everything is learned. 
I think DNA can be reprogrammed when you do things repetitively. So yeah, I, that's what the three simple things is a linear uh, program discussion of how I've trained 280 people now uh, to learn and apply the lessons that we have been and will talk about. Absolutely. It can be uh, learned. You can learn to keep your word. It's just freaking hard. Yeah, you're <laughs> fair enough. Um, while you were in Afghanistan in 2009, and you're kind of writing about what's going on there uh, in, in the book Unbreakable, you, you, you describe the men you were, you were serving with uh, quite colorfully. Um, and it's great. It gives so much character um, to, to help us really um, connect with, with you and, and the team and what you guys are going through. Uh, in, describing, uh, in describing these guys, I'll quote you here. You said, my lieutenant, LT, is the only officer I have known who I admire and see eye to eye with. Paradoxically, after 20 years in the military, I still fight with my leaders daily. When he and I joined up, we both agreed that the primary platoon relationship was between the boss, which was him, and the chief, which was you. Since then, we have worked toward giving each other room to do our different jobs while always looking out for each other. As the men saw us work for each other and the platoon, they too worked under the same simple vision. We win or we lose together and we live to fight another day together. Everyone makes mistakes, but we go stronger together. What I'm really curious about is why was, why was LT the only officer you admired after all those years uh, in the SEALs? Because, and I asked this question because I've, you know, in interviewing a lot of- Dude, guys, I've been trying to ask, answer that I, for years. <laughs> <what>? <laughs> Holy Toledo. So, you know, maybe it was the ass kick that I got at West Point that I have a negative spin on officers. It's probably that emotional letdown, uh, but uh, my interactions with SEAL officers uh, were, you can't put two alphas in a room. It's very <laughs> difficult. <laughs> Nobody's going to come out well, and everybody's right. And so that's the problem with uh, the, the SEAL community is everybody is dominant, and it's a rough environment. The issue with a platoon chief and a lieutenant is the platoon chief, in my case, I'd been there 20 years and he'd only been there six. Gotcha. And I'm like, hey, listen, here's how this really goes down. I, I know what your job is and you know what my job is. Let's check each other to make sure we don't make mistakes but I'm not going to tell you what to do. And don't you tell me what to do. And I like even my wife, Stacy's like, uh, I'm always on the verge of when somebody tells me what to do, I'm like, bro, nah, nah, it's not gonna, even if it's right, just don't tell me what to do. And, uh, so, but he understood that and he, I had put him through training when he was a student. Okay. So we had a level of respect for each other. And uh, I had taken on a platoon that was, I called them the bastard stepchildren. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were bad. And they'd had a leader before I was there that didn't like them and they didn't like him. Mm -hmm. And the officer of that platoon was horrible. And uh, so I had made a point with uh, Brian, the Lieutenant, 
uh, this is all you and I. It's, this is our world. They're living in it. All we can do is make our relationship the best one and then help them be a part of it. And that's the, the deal is that the chief goes to war and he pulls everybody with him. And I knew it would be up to me to say yes or no to the missions and to the men. I'd had to choose the guys that would go out. And it's a, it's a heavy burden, but I wanted uh, Lieutenant to, I, this is our job, and we're probably not going to survive it. And he's like, well, you know, I, you know, what's your prediction of us going to war? I'm like, I've gone to war on every deployment. And we didn't think we were going to go to Afghanistan until a month before the deployment. And then we got shifted from the Philippines to Afghanistan and comparing the two is like apples and dogs. You wouldn't compare them. <laughs> right. And I was like, this is going to get scary. We're going to, we're going to hit the ground fire shooting and we don't know when we're going to come up for air. And uh, that was the case. We were in massive combat and I had to help him understand how to be a Lieutenant and, oversee people that are scared all the time and we created a lot of death and destruction and we every time we went out it was like two million dollars we expended in in ammo and such and he had to account for it and it was it's stressful on leaders to go to everybody's questioning you are you sure you guys are doing the right thing you know or you guys are getting people shot up and you're coming back with enemy kias like crazy and and uh i just had to keep him calm and I probably screwed that up a bunch of times. And, <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, I, I tend to think, uh, the, when the, the key leaders in any business mm -hmm. love and respect each other, the business is booming when they don't like each other, like the COO and the CEO, if they're at odds, you can't do anything. The business is stuffed. And I, that's what I know to be true in business now, but I knew that. And I didn't want my, my uh, combat deployment to be at bitter odds with uh, the people. Okay. I don't know if that answers it, but. I think it, I, I think it does. In fact, it really comes through in the book that you, you not only turn that team around, but you, you come across as a, you know, a true servant leader. Um, your, your men clearly loved you and you loved them. And, you know, you were able to make a work with the Lieutenant as well. You guys were, I mean, just everybody seemed to be on the same page and that's, that can't be easy when you get a team that was absolutely, um, reticent, uh, with respect to, you know, having to, uh, be a part of a command structure where they didn't get the right attention, yeah. the right, there was, there was no respect, uh, and for you to turn that, turning that around can't be easy. And then forming the bonds that you did and making it work so well uh, in the end, um, you know, I think you end up bringing everyone home alive. Um, yeah. The, the, the funny thing that I don't know if I make a point of it, it's just a learning lesson that is very valuable, especially with the title alpha human. Uh, uh, you have to let yourself fail and you have to let your men or your women or whoever you're leading fail. You have to tell them, I don't want perfection. Perfection is the stupidest conversation to ever have as a human being, because it never is. You can always better something, so it's never perfect. But I want you to openly push it till it breaks. I want you to fall apart and fail. I want you to make a mistake. I want to talk about it, and then I want to better it. And 
that platoon that I inherited was trying to be perfect because everything that they do wrong, because you're constantly doing things wrong in combat. Mm -hmm. Seals are always screwing something up because it's a very difficult lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But they were made wrong constantly for doing that and evaluated against the, the proper way to do it. And I'm like, well, that's not serving anybody. The thing is to break things and move fast and learn from it. And if you didn't die, learn from it. And I told them, I said, I'm going to give me six months. And if you don't want to be in this platoon, I'll find another place for you. But give me six months. But in that six months, you come to work ready to go. And if you're not coming to work ready to go, I'll get rid of you quickly. And, uh, and then I just gave them carte blanche. Here's the mission. You guys figure it out. I'm not going to tell you how to go. You're, you're in combat. I'm not going to tell you where to point your gun, where to lay down. Those basic skills are gone. When you're in a SEAL platoon, it's all tactical, how I interact with other people. And do I want to go the extra mile for my buddy? You don't care about the enemy. Like I, most guys never see the enemy unless he's right in front of you. But we're shooting guys at 500 yards away. You don't get to interact with them. It's just make really good decisions really quickly and take care of each other. And and I, I found out that uh, I thought leadership was uh, dict dictatorial mm -hmm. in combat. Dictatorial doesn't make, doesn't make any difference. All you got to do is help people do their job and they'll tell you, hey, boss, this is what I need. OK, I'll go get it because I, I don't want to be in the firefight as a leader. I want to be helping them win the battle, not me go shoot somebody. In, in a, I did a lot of shooting, but yeah, you did. mine was just, you want a can of Copenhagen? All right, bro, I'll go risk my life for a Copenhagen to bring it back for you. And they appreciated that more because they, they knew what they were doing. They just needed to have uh, you know, somebody loving on them and supporting what they were going through. Yeah, again, that comes across really well in the book. Um, in fact, another thing I wanted to uh, delve into for a moment is, it, so... Here's another quote about someone uh, on the team, Jake. Jake was the angriest sniper and corpsman in the teams. Probably why he works so well for, for this platoon. I think we are all gifted in the I hate everyone arena. And Jake is Olympic level, but his stability transcends his anger. And I laugh as I write this. I think he actually loves the platoon and hates everyone else. But his attitude works for me. Why did anger and the I hate everyone attitude, why did that work so well for the platoon and for what it is you guys? Because I, mean, I do the same thing. I don't like people a lot. I, I, you're asking, so I'm being honest. Yeah, please. Like I'm not the person that walks across the street and, and invites neighbors over. Once they're here, it's fine. But I have, a, I'm like, I, I don't know you. It's not a matter of trust, but I, I haven't done anything with you. So, and, uh, but he had, I'd put him through training too. And he was just bitter. Like shit hadn't worked out for him. And the last deployment was really a bitter experience for him. And I, I can deal with bitter. I can deal with that because I know what it's, what it's like. Mm. And uh, bitter people require uh, pushing them into experiences that, make them bitter but it's people don't understand that everybody like this culture of hey you know 
positive and empathy and all that vulnerability shit that ain't in the teams. There's no vulnerability. There's, I, I hate people and give me a chance to go shoot somebody and you give them too much uh, downtime to get drunk and have problems. Not that he was one of those, but he was just angry all the time. I knew exactly where he stood on everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wanted to have authority to design his own, you know, combat experience. So I'm like, all right, you're primary sniper. Right when we take over the target, you better be up on a roof working it out. By the time I get up to you, you better be shooting. And he's like, really, you're going to let me have that authority? Yep. Whatever you need, tell me, we'll buy it. We'll have it sent over, whatever you need. And uh, he and I were, I don't know if I comes across in the book, he and I were shooting next to each other and uh, a bullet goes through his a sandbag right in front of him and breaks his teeth yeah. and lands on his tongue. And he looks over and spits it out. And I'm like, Hey, I'm not going to get you the purple heart. <laughs> and uh, so, it, and he was mad about it. He's like, I'm a, who is that guy that shot me? And he was spent like an hour trying to find out who it was. And, uh, but those guys are predictable and they're great warriors. Hmm. They're just, if you don't like anger, you cannot exist in a combat environment because Love and, and war don't go along very well, but anger and war are twins. And so I knew that to be the case and I liked him, but uh, most of the platoon was that way. We had one happy guy. The rest of them were bitter and angry. One happy guy. Yep. Who was that? Uh, I, I think I called him uh, ground launch. Yeah, ground launch. He's in the book. He was ha- he was f- having fun, yeah, playing around all the time. I'm like, God dang, dude! You know, we you know we're out of water, dude. And he would be throwing water around. I'm like, What are you doing? And he was just having fun. He was there to have fun. You need someone like that. You need yeah. you, you need at least one to you know to to have that. Um, you know, but that- he was happy, as opposed to cracking jokes. He was just happy, happy to be alive. He knew his job. He was a, he was a corpsman or a medic and mm-hmm. knew it really well and, and uh, was always on top of things. And uh, he, the first combat engagement we had, somebody got, two guys got their legs blown off and he was right there and he was happy during that. And I was like, dude, are you okay? He goes, yeah, this is great. I'm having a great time. Yeah. There you go. Yep. Um, so you know, these are the kinds of personalities and uh, the types of attitude and philosophies that uh, kind of mix in order to make someone uh, a, a warrior and uh, someone who is capable of going into combat. And, you know, we'll talk about the you know, getting through combat and, and, you know, what actually you have to do to survive, not only that, but, but also to survive life and to, and to thrive on life because, and, you know, the book's called Unbreakable. I think it is an app. I mean, you know, got to give it to the publisher because, you know, truly uh, it, the lessons the traits and the advice that you give, if you can do all these things, you know, you, you are unbreakable. And I'll quote you. You say, I learned one thing that sticks with me still and drives everything that I do. Search out the thing that is in everyone, the thing that is unbreakable or what 
we have called adamantine and nurture it, feed it and teach others to get access to it. That will make all the difference as nothing else truly matters. And throughout the book, Tom, you lay out, as you said, 13 tasks or challenges or lessons, you call them. You laid them out for your children, um, but you lay out those lessons so that you can become, quote unquote, unbreakable. As you said, keep your word as one of them, facing your fears another, pushing beyond your comfort zone. But one of the biggest lessons that is woven throughout the entire book and most of these challenges uh, that you discuss really is steeped within uh, this concept that you call your internal dialogue. Mm. And, you know, I, this is this, so this is definitely the first thing I want to explore because it's one of the most impactful thing you, you talk about. So, you know, those the, a lot of those lessons, but certainly the first three, um, they're they're about controlling your internal dialogue. So can you tell us what is internal dialogue and why is it crucial to master this? It's been a struggle for 52 years to be able to put a conversation together that is understandable about what I call internal dialogue that when you say it, people will be like, oh, okay, I got it. So how I define the process of internal dialogue, it's what you say to yourself that you believe. And notionally or truthfully, belief is a disease. So be very careful what you say about anything, and especially what you believe that you're saying to be true. And that complicates the thing. So it's what you say to yourself that drives everything that you do. Come to find out there's a structure to it. And I had to go uh, to some uh, psychologists to understand this. And when I started to penetrate the world of, uh, I think all people have five areas that internal dialogue shows up, meaning what you say drives everything, their health, their ability to learn, their ability to grow wealth or pursue wealth, their relationships and their spiritual life. Those five areas, language drives everything in those areas. Mm -hmm. No DNA, doesn't matter what you look like, it matters what you say about something. Uh, so one of the truths is in war, the moment you acknowledge that you're dead, you will die. If you never acknowledge it, you keep getting closer to not dying. What I know to be true about combat, 2,700 hours, is when you begin to check out mentally in combat, accidents find you. And I've never seen a guy that's on point, very aware, die. I've seen people slip, like they stop paying attention like one of the reasons why I got the silver stars, we stopped paying attention. And in five minutes, the enemy found something that we didn't know and exploited it. In five minutes of not paying attention, darn near cost us all our lives. And so what I found to be, I was like, fuck, that's profound. So what does it look like? Can you teach it? So the shape of internal dialogue, it actually has a shape. It's the use of these four verbs, am, 
is, are, and be. I call them the being verbs. Okay. Be very careful when you use them because that becomes true. I am done. Yep, you're done. I can't go anymore, which means I quit. Like I am out. So be very careful how you shape language, like declaration statement that you make to your wife or your husband, whatever, that declares who you are, which is a being verb for them forever. All you have to do is keep saying that and it drives everything, but we stop saying it. And in health, uh, when you say I am unbreakable, what's possible? Anything. People don't live that life because they say the opposite. I am broken. Then you have to show the world that you're broken. Mm. And in, in business, there's opportunities now more than ever before in the history of mankind. There's so many ways to make a living, do something that's valuable, make a million dollars. But people don't look at wealth as an abundant conversation. They look at it as I am scarce, like there is scarcity. If you believe there's scarcity, you can't find a dollar in a bank. So as I started interviewing like the, the top five people, great athletes, great academicians, great you know, multimillionaires, people who are top of relationship and, and some clergymen and some, some top spiritual leaders, mm -hmm. they all use the I am statement as a framework in which to live. And when I started hearing them all say that, I was like, well, that, that is the premise of success is language. The structure of language drives what you're capable of doing. And that's a freaking esoteric conversation. Mm. But what I know to be true and in, in teaching leaders and anybody willing to take on the, the training that we do is you got to start mastering language before I'll teach you. Because all that we're going to do moving forward is declare something, put it into a formula and get after it. If you can't convince yourself to do it, I can't help you. You know, Right, right. Hold on. I'm just plugging this in here before we lose power. Um, so <clears throat> there is a, you know, it, an interesting uh, point there that you're making because even though you've interviewed so many people who have shown you that this is no doubt um, the way those who are unbreakable think, you knew this before that. You, you I mean, you know, you you talk about this in in the book um, while you were in combat. You were you were teaching this um, to your children this concept of internal dialogue. And I'll, I'll tell you. So here's one of the things you say. So the first important discovery you must make in accessing and thus mastering your internal dialogue is to access and understand the core of your physical performance. Every man and woman must get over his or her own physically self-imposed barriers. Yeah. Perseverance will expand the known world into a larger unknown world of possibilities. So why is the need to be physical, right? So you say the need to be physical, to be forever fighting my way through something or back to something as I am now is always in me. Why is that? 
Uh, it's the visceral experience of living. Like people have to master their bodies. Uh, a lot of people don't. And uh, until you master your body, you don't get the relative, uh, gosh, increase in understanding how to do anything else very well. Uh, but so the structure of mastery in the physical space, once you, because you can feel it. Odd, oddly, if you work out, you'll get stronger because you get to see that, but people don't. So in the face of language and action, the visceral feedback of seeing it happen physically is so demonstrative to your brain that you don't have to be convinced. Like you work out, oh my God, I'm stronger. Do it wrong. You get negative feedback. So do you take that mechanism, having learned that and mastered it and felt it and understood it into the other four, what I call pyramids, mm -hmm. you don't have to convince yourself that it's not going to work. You just impart the same formula and approach to it. And you see it play out the same way in every aspect of your life. But I, I've been trying to teach it differently. I had to evolve back to teaching it physically. I have to show you this physically. And then once you show me back what I just told you, we'll do the other work in the other areas. Mm -hmm. Like I tried to teach it spiritually first and it never worked. And I, did, I didn't know why. It's just, well, shit, that didn't work. But when I taught it in the physical space first, everything else was easy. Your first three lessons start off as, you know, as physical. Um, you talk about your greatest physical achievement as the years you spent adventure racing. Now, I, I, I want to put, I, I want to, you know, kind of quote you here because this really sums up something that, you know, is really powerful. You say that the first adventure race that you signed up for was 700 miles. And you said that my mind was racing with the thoughts, um, with thoughts like I have never done something like this and you know geez um i don't even own a mountain bike uh and eventually reality overwhelmed you after you signed up because re you realized not only that not only didn't you have a mountain bike but you didn't have a team you didn't have the money to pay for it, uh you know for the entry the entry fee was eighty five hundred dollars and the cost of the gear and the training you calculated would be much more around thirty thousand dollars yep, yep. So you said nothing transforms you more than putting money down toward your goal. And a funny thing happened about a millisecond after you closed the computer, your hands started shaking and your internal dialogue went from you need this, right, to you are nuts. Yep. But maybe this is what courage is, staking yourself out in the face of your enemy as the Sioux Indians would do. Mm -hmm. They stake themselves to the ground because the urge to run away was so powerful. So the first step is the hardest to act, to commit, to sign on the line so that all of you, that all you have is engaged. Yep. At least that is what I have found in all great efforts in the history of man. So let me ask you, is this, is, is this the symbiosis of the psychological dialogue, right? Of, okay, I have the feeling that this is something I want to do. And then the physical kind of working together where it's like, okay, I'm going to stake myself on this thing uh, to ensure that you have no choice but to follow through. 
Um, so I think it's less complicated than that. I think we were taught wrong how to look at commitment and, you know, neuromuscular programming and, and emotional, you know, quotient and all that stuff. Right. Two things are going on all the time. Your desire to do something and your excuse is not to do it. Okay. It's literally that simple. Most people don't recognize those two dragons are fighting each other. Boy, I really want to be fit. I really want to make a million dollars. That's the positive side. There's really no negative side. There's just excuses. So I go out and I try to sell and somebody says no. And I make that mean something. That's now an excuse. I promise, and then I excuse myself from that level of commitment. So what I've found to be true is you've got to overcome, you got to commit first, mm -hmm. and then you spend the rest of your life overcoming the reasons not to do it. And the reasons are every day. Masters have to overcome excuses. So what I found to be true, that's the truth of human beings. One is it becomes difficult because nobody ever commits. So they're living inside an excuse already. Okay. I'm too old. That's an excuse. I'm too young. That's an excuse. I don't have a master's degree. So I can't run. I can't swim. I can't do this. I don't have a bike. All that is living inside of an excuse world. You have to kill that off very quickly. And the only way to do that is to jump out and grab something on the outside of the excuse and go, okay, this is where I'm going. Immediately excuses will come up. And there are four beautiful ones that have excused everybody in the world from being great. And the first one is pain. Pain excuses you from continuing emotional, physical drama, whatever, whatever pain people experience they then check out of being committed. I have a fever. I can't go to work. Now the government is endorsing, excusing yourself, right. which is tragic. The second excuse that I didn't necessarily recognize until I got out is uh, um, support. My dad doesn't support me. My wife doesn't support me. My boss doesn't think much of me. I had a great idea, but I got turned down. So it excuses you from committing and continuing on when you don't have support around you. The third one is uh, a funny one. Uh, it's called, this is fucking stupid. Yeah. yeah, that's excused everybody from doing anything. And it comes up one closer to the end of being successful. Like you have to do this. I have to do this six more days. You've been doing it for a year. Just stick it out another two days. No, I'm done. This is stupid. So this is stupid prevents everybody from the, the final level of success. Like I promised to go up Everest, but I stopped at camp five. Right. Because this is stupid. I was dying. There's nothing different. You were going to die up there anyway, because it's a death zone. That's what it's called, the death zone. But when, you, when people experience this is stupid, they stop doing what they've committed to do. The fourth one is I forgot. Literally, people forget and they lose millions. 
I forgot to make a call. I forgot to come to the podcast. I forgot to do this. I forgot to do that. I forgot to tell my wife I loved her. And it's a cascading hell that happens. So all those four excuses and multiple others can be adjusted. Deal with pain. Don't break. Stop. Recover. Go at it again. Get somebody to help you. Get a wife who freaking supports you. You Develop a network. All the excuses in the world can be hedged against and gone and gotten rid of, but nobody looks at that world. So Mm -hmm. I spend all my time only looking at how to prevent somebody from living their excuse-driven life as opposed to like their purpose-driven life on the other side. Because the two can't live hand in hand, but the excuse-driven life is much more powerful. It'll kill you. It literally kills everybody. So I spend all my time over there talking to people about that. So um, most people live in the excuse-driven world, which I guess is why um, very few people make uh, their dreams a reality. You know, you you know, you signed up for the adventure race, then you real, then, then you realized, you know, not only is this absurdly hard to do, by the way, for the uninitiated, what is an adventure race? So it's a multi-sport race that has a map and a compass and a start line and a finish line. And you have to be with a team of four and one female. Uh, sometimes they're all male, but it's usually a team of people mountain biking, hiking, running, paddling, swimming, climbing, rollerblading, horseback riding, a bunch of different events. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people who can synergistically work together longer than the other team wins. And you got to be in astronomical shape. Like most people think they're in shape. It's not adventure race in shape. Like you have to be able to sleep on a on a rock and recover and then get running again and you have to go without sleep and without food and emotions are raw and oh it's a brutal environment and it was uh, illuminating for me i mean it, it i hadn't heard of adventure racing before i read your book and just to put in context how hard it is your team was made up of uh, Navy SEALs. So you cajoled a few of your guys into uh, joining and making up the team. Um, and so now we're talking Navy SEALs. And, you know, after one of the legs of your first adventure race, I mean, it was so hard. I mean, teams are quitting left and right because yeah. they just can't make it through this. And you guys, there's a there's a moment in the book where you you make it to the end of one of the legs not the end of the race, one of the legs. And you say, I cried for the first time. Yeah. You said, not because I wanted a shower or food and water. I cried because of another thought. I was going to see my kids again. I had not, I had not let myself consciously say so, but what truly drove me to get out, to get to the end of the leg was my kids. Yeah. Now that's coming from a Navy, <laughs> it's coming yeah. from a Navy SEAL. Yeah, it's a, a lot of people don't understand that when you do something very hard where you're challenged and it's not going well, what does the mind go to? And I hadn't 
read a lot of books that discuss that and I wanted to somehow discuss it with my kids and and you know a lot of fathers feel this way when you're when you're a successful businessman or woman but man especially uh, you don't have a lot of time with your family and I didn't have a lot and during rough times I always get that in my head of uh, hey uh, you need to get back to your family which is I don't know if it's good or bad but my brain always went there. Mm. And when times get sucky for me now, uh, I, I go, okay, the, you just need to make it home. Not that I'm in war anymore, but I still reflect on the greatest gift you can do for your, anybody is to fight your way back to them. And uh, because the, the, that leg that happened that you're talking about, uh, it was about a hundred degrees outside. We hadn't had water for 12 hours. And we'd been on the mountain bike for 36 hours and it was brutal. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm going to quit, but you can't quit. <laughs> There's nobody going to help you. I'm like, shit, we still got to go another 15 miles and the tires were flat and everybody's attitude was, I'm going to kill somebody, but I don't have enough energy to do it. <laughs> and uh, like, if we saw a car, we would, we would quit. There's no cars. I'm like, Oh my God. So the next step, and, and it would, people were sick, had a guy that I know had hyperthermia or he was having heat stroke. Cool, we don't have any water to cool him down and nobody's coming by to help. So we would stop at a bush, get him down, get him laying flat, and then he would somewhat recover. And I was like, this is miserable. So we get finally get to camp and uh, I was like, I'm done, I'm done, I'm out. And uh, so we all took a nap and woke back up and we're like hey let's go we're ready to go <laughs> Amazing. we'll deal with the reality of life later but let's get on the next leg and it so, was not easier getting there was a water leg and the wind made it terrible we had to hike our boats up over a mountain which you don't plan for and it's just one traumatic event over the other which what i learned from adventure racing it was probably the most profound way to lead in combat is just don't stop it's going to suck worse than you could possibly imagine. Just keep moving. Don't get down on each other, which is usually the human tendency is to blame somebody else and be angry mm. and uh, just be the people that stand at the end. Even if you don't have any feet left, you got to make it to the end. And uh, that was what I tried to also point out. Adventure racing taught me how to be a leader. Right. Right. Um, yeah, you, 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 you talk about that in the book, um, how it, it, and it's, it's amazing that, again, you, you're, at this time you're in the SEALs, um, in fact, you're training SEALs, uh, and you're also doing the adventure race and you're learning about leadership, having to live through an adventure race, which clearly people can die yeah. um, in, in it, it, this is not fun in games. I mean, clearly it's, it's a very, very intense experience but uh, you know and uh, something else that you learned um you say another great resource you will have to learn is how to fearlessly engage everyone with your dream and your passion you say learn how to ask for what you want and how to hear rejection as only a momentary setback because you didn't have money for the adventure race your first adventure race you had no money there's 30 grand you know, plus another, uh, you know, eight eighty five hundred for the entry fee. So you you said 
I must have sent out 200 internet requests for money and, and uh, for gear. And you received somehow 205 no answers, if that's even possible. Yeah. You say hearing no as anything other than a momentary no breaks down your health, your drive, your ambition. The problem is not being told no, but your belief that the answer will always be no. Now, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Tom, I found this particularly interesting because uh, of its relevance, uh, its relevance to the world I've inhabited for the last 25 years, which is the world of sales. I lead sales teams. I'm in the, I'm in the world of professional selling. And what you've just said there is at the core of what it takes to be a tremendous success as a professional uh, seller. How did you overcome this? Because it is the single reason people either hate selling and never do it for a living, or it is exactly what makes them quit when they attempted to try it as, you know, as, as a profession. So, you know, how did you come upon this, this realization, which is the single greatest thing you could, you learn mm -hmm. as, um, you know, as a million dollar producer when you're, when you're in sales? Uh, I, I look at it now. I have to be a 52 year old looking back. Uh, at the moment, I, I can't articulate why I wrote it that way. So looking back at the what I know to be true is, uh, like I said earlier, there's no way out. So you st you still have to figure this out. And what I know to be true about great salesmen is they want the end and they don't care about the process. Okay. Right. I'm going to hear a thousand no's. I want that million dollars or I want that thing. I want that top, you know, salesperson thing or whatever they're, they're clear about their purpose or where they're trying to head. Right. They don't care how they're going to get there. So I'm going to talk to this person. Okay. Well, that was a no. Okay, cool. That was on Monday. Talk to Jenny. Phone may not work for a lot of people. Don't get discouraged. Find something else. But when the when the end is crystal clear and not negotiable, to me, sales is simple. Just it's iterative. Don't get it's not an emotion. Why would you apply an emotional response to things that don't work out? To me, nothing ever worked out the first time. So I was like, oh, it's cool. It's not going to work out. I guarantee it's not going to work out. So, so what I, the, what I found out and still to this day, internet is not my friend. There are people that make money on the internet. I can't figure it out, but I love to be in talking to somebody. So I learned it then. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to get on the phone with somebody or I'm going to go meet them. And so I got on the phone with Ross Perot and he's like, shit, anything you want. I'm like, oh, that was easy. I was doing it wrong. So what I also know about salespeople is when you figure out your niche, what you're good at, don't triple down. Sometimes it's internet. Sometimes it's email. Sometimes it's in person. Sometimes it's just with women. When you figure that out, triple, triple, double, quadruple down on it. And not everybody has to have the same niche. And that's, I had learned that then. And, and, I don't necessarily teach sales. I just teach people how to make a lot of money. And one of those things is, fuck no. Who cares? Who cares what she said? He said, it was your problem. You looked at it wrong, not them. Yeah. There's no way 
unless you're selling something stupid that's not of value to anybody, but you like real estate people. Obviously, the person wants a house. Just find the house for them. I don't want that one. Well, don't the agent doesn't care which house you go to unless they do. Like if they're trying to sell this house, right? They're gonna be stuffed because not everybody wants that. So to me, I just saw it as it's a million times. You got to hear a million no's to get one yes. But if you're not willing to do that, you're in the wrong line of work. It's also no. getting a girlfriend. She's going to say no for a while. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if she says yes today, the first time, you may not want to go out with her. You know. I, I, I can't believe that you uh, you mentioned Ross Perot because uh, that's that's amazing because. Uh, all, you know, almost 20 years ago, I cold called Ross Perot. I got him on the phone. This is when he had EDS. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I was selling advertising space in a, a commemorative publication. It was the 50th anniversary of the Green Berets. Mm. Uh, and I called him up and pitched him to take out an egg because he had given money to the uh, the uh, special forces museum, right? So I, he told me no. He didn't tell. He, so he told me no. He didn't tell you no. Um, but um, interesting, uh, interesting story. Um, okay, back on topic. I I want to ask you about lesson four: creating love. In this lesson, here's what you say, and throughout the book, um, you talk about this concept: the need to be needed. Mm -hmm. I'll quote you here. I know the internal dialogue of need to be and need to be needed is inside everyone. In some, it gets killed off for some reason. Mm -hmm. It gets put in a box and hidden away. Men who survive when others fail have a need to be needed. Yep. Factual. What is that all about? Uh no so there's no lone warrior it doesn't really exist it's in movies okay. like you read a movie watch a movie about this lone indian warrior conquering by himself it doesn't happen in the real world like there's throughout history there's never been a lone warrior that's successful there could be one like marcus luttrell lone survivor not because it was successful it's what wasn't successful you know but so uh, uh, what gets you the next 10% during crisis mm -hmm. is the need to go back home, the need to survive, the need to help your buddy. That's because your buddy needs you and you need him and you, you notice it and you feel it. The, that's the dynamics of the SEAL teams is it's not a, a benign environment is they drive you to need the next guy. If you don't fight for the next guy, they punish you. So if you, during crisis and, and during a, a dangerous situation from training until you retire, when things get shitty, find your buddy first. If you don't find your buddy first and get six feet away from him, you get punished. So from the first day of training, they tell you that this is how you're going to Anytime you're in a dangerous situation, you got to get six feet away from your seal buddy. Find him first and then solve the problem. 
So that does that creates inside of all the seals or all warriors a need to to need somebody else. Like I need him around, otherwise I'm going to die. And that condition is embedded into the SEAL teams. It's just not really said that way. You fight for your brother, you fight for your buddy. But what's going on internally is I need him. And I feel a desire to need that. I want that experience to fight for him and him to fight for me. And like, I like literally, I don't, I never care, concern myself with the enemy. Mm. I didn't care about the enemy. It was an empty face. It was just another mission that we were on. And they would, they put you. So what happens to the SEAL teams is they put you in shit situations and you fight your way out. That's what it is to be a SEAL. So let's put us ourselves in the worst condition that we can find and let's design a way out. That's what combat is. Marines are different. They're, they're defensive. They're getting penetrated on. They do base security. So SEALs are all offensive. Drop me in somewhere where I have a lot of intel and I'm trying to find somebody. That's an unwinnable situation. And then SEALs find a way out, find a way to win, find a way to un unfuck this situation. And that to me was what combat was. I'm like, well, all we need is a group of guys that will fight for each other and that are highly skilled, put us in anywhere and we're going to find a solution and find a way out. And at least for six months, that was true. So this whole concept of um, I don't need anyone and, you know, that that kind of attitude, uh, as you call it, you know, the lone wolf attitude. Are, are you saying that in order to be in order to to thrive, uh, in order to survive, um, you have to have inside you the need to be needed? Does everyone does everyone have that? No, not everybody has it. Okay. There are guys in the SEAL teams that don't have it. And they, you try to find a, things that they can do and succeed at, but uh, in a team environment, they're not very good. Like the lone wolf is not a good wolf to have around, even if he's the toughest bro on the planet. Okay. Best shot in the world, man, you don't work well with anybody and you're not willing to go across the street to help your buddy. So, uh, and it's a rare character trait, but it's not DNA. You have to you have to keep programming yourself. Like it's counterintuitive to give up your life for somebody else. Right. It doesn't make sense. Like, I'm just going to stay here. He fucked up. I'm not going to run across there. That's the normal human tendency. And then in a firefight, fight your way to your buddy, you and he solve it. It's easier to cower in the corner and run the other direction. So you have to reprogram yourself to do that. The teams are 90 nine percent effective in doing that because that's what all the scenarios and training are about is not that you win the battle is did you fight for each other Amazing. did you work well with the guys next to you like the seal teams in training you never win so there's never a grade pass fail there's how many people died and what did you do to solve it okay. did you give up did you that's what failures in the teams is did you give up on the scenario and then it go to hell so okay, your point man gets shot. What did you do about it? Your leader got shot. What did you do about it? Okay, the vehicle got blown up. What did you do about it? Did you quit? Or did you get out and go, okay, damn, it's going to be 20 mile walk. Everybody have water, ready, set, go. So all the staff is doing is seeing how you're interacting with each other throughout the whole cycle. They're never going to let you win anyway. 
like you're never going to win the target. Right. So in combat is the only experience you have of winning. You're like, oh my God, it was easy. All we had to do is kill the guy. Now we got to find a way out of here. And so to me, combat was simple and easy and clear. You know, you said before that um, belief is a very dangerous thing. And you talk about this, this concept of hope and belief in the book. And here, here's what you say. You say, I want you to look at your language and the meaning of words, both yours and those that others are using, specifically hope and belief. So you have a problem with the words hope and belief, Tom. Tell Horrible. me about tell me about the issues with these two words, because, you know, both and especially believe or belief are what many highlight when they talk about what you need when you're looking to achieve something or what what is necessary to feel when you're attempting to get through tough times. You, it, you know, times are tough. Well, have hope that you'll get through. Right. Have hope. There's always hope. And then, you know, if you believe you can achieve it, you'll achieve it. You got to have belief. Talk about you. You have a very interesting uh, thought on this. So whoever pushes hope and belief was never there. <laughs> so it, it, I'm not what. So hope is the absence of follow through and responsibility. I hope uh, somebody comes and picks me up. You ain't doing anything about it. The humans have re, human beings have re, regressed back to using hope as an excuse. Boy, I hope I do well on this test. Oh, cool. Are you studying? Are you exhausted? Can you put one more minute of studying in? No, but I really hope that it will work out. I hope my wife loves me. When was the last time you told her you loved her? Oh. So hope is the absence of action and follow through. So that's why I say it's a, it's, it's a tragic word to use as a human being. What so belief you? is the absence of knowledge. If you know, you'll never use the word belief in a sentence. If you know God, you don't believe in God. If I know my wife loves me, I don't believe she loves me. Right. So when people use, you got to believe in yourself. No, you don't. You don't know yourself. I know what I'm capable of doing. I know it's going to suck to get there. <laughs> I don't then believe, oh my God, it's, everything's going to work out. No, it's not all going to work out. One thing out of a hundred is going to work out. Don't believe that a hundred things are going to work out. So it, it's a crippling atmosphere to create when leaders push hope and push belief because I've made the people that listen to me sheep and they're done. They won't get, they won't, they can't support their own life. If I live a, live a life of hope, I'm not doing anything, but I hope the government saves me. I hope, I hope, gosh, I hope the sales pitch works. Have you done it a thousand times yet? No, this is my first time. By the way, it ain't going to work. You, the first one, just get, have, it, have it be a throwaway. Suck at it. Intensely suck at it. Don't even dress right because you're going to fail at it anyway. But believe, to me, belief is the worst. Belief is a horrible condition. You know, Don't believe. Do. Figure it out. 
seek, seek, the, seek the information that you want, but don't believe that it's ever going to happen. So you, That's how I look at it. So you've replaced these words with, I know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very powerful perspective on something that so many take for granted. And you're right. The whole, you know, a, a large part, the majority of the self-help industry is based on, you know, belief. Yeah. Belief that, as you say. Seek knowledge. That was one of the precursors to uh, long ago. Uh, I can't remember the words. Know yourself and seek self-improvement. It's a soldier's creed from, from revolution. Know yourself which means go do things and gain knowledge and improve upon it. That's 245 years old. Uh, uh, there's another thing that Chinese proverb about hope is, uh, I can't remember what it is, but I spent a lot of time looking at those words because I hear them often in children and in teachers. And I see the outcome of, kids that get brought up into an environment of hope and belief is they're in despair, but they don't need to be like, wouldn't it be awesome to be teaching salespeople that grew up with the notion that you have to do something a thousand times. You, you wouldn't have to teach them anymore. You would just, okay, here's what we're going to do. You get a thousand failures, you get a thousand failures. And then when you come back, I don't even care if you, if you come back with a success and everybody's like, okay, let's, I'll go do a thousand today or this week. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm going to fail. He knows I'm going to fail. We're going to have fun and we're going to come back and then we're going to get to work. There'd be a lot of great, there, like sales would be the simple factor. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Amazing. Um, you know, again, this, this concept of internal dialogue, but also language. So, so crucial. Uh, to everything that we do. As you lay out in this book, it becomes more and more obvious how much of your life is dependent on this. But you also say it's, it's not just your own language because you talk about the fact that you also have to be aware of the ill-willed internal dialogue of others mm. and that, that the language others use can have a terrible effect on your own efforts. So can you, can you explain, can you explain that? Can you explain what that's about? You know, leadership, mentorship, they're two different concepts, parenting, teaching. Uh, it's not that the teacher or the mentor or the leader destroys the person. So that's the external influence. Mm -hmm. It's that the person allows it to really be meaningful. Like when a parent comes down on a child the child, it doesn't really matter that the parent did that, but the child gives great meaning to that. Uh, you, know, you go up to a teacher when you're in high school or you go up to a coach and you're like, hey, coach, send me in. And the coach is busy doing something and goes, no, shit, you, you suck as a player. That, that person could be devastated by that. Mm -hmm. It's not the coach's fault. It's the individual receiving it they received it like in the hope and belief thing. It's, it's not right. real. 
So the negative influence is always there. Sometimes it's offensive and sometimes it's passive, but you know, you, the look of a, somebody that you admire and they looked at you wrong and you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. They could have been blinking. You just never know. And when you own that as a, when you understand language drives everything and you own that as a parent, you're, you're like, you fuck it up every day with your kids. Hey dad, I want to go do this. And your back hurts. You're like, no, I don't want to do that. And you're not really good at that anyway. You know what I mean? You sure you want to do that? And so they go, well, I'm not an athlete. And that happens in a millisecond. Or they try a problem on their, you know, on a, a math assignment. And you're like, man, you're stupid. Why can't you figure that out? They're done. So that negative outside influence that's counterproductive is always there until you begin to realize I, what I do with it. When you realize, like if you were to yell at me and you're teaching me to sell and I knew that language is important, mm -hmm. I would be like, okay, bro, are you having an okay day? Because <laughs> you're pissing all over everybody here. And you'd be like, no, you guys all suck. Okay, I get it. But we're about ready to go out the door and sell some stuff here. And that was shitty. It's hard to go out into that space. And you didn't even know you were doing it your wife just called you a name and you're taking it out on everybody else. So when you become to recognize that it's a different environment where you cannot uh, take it to heart constantly. Okay. I don't give a shit what people say to me. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't bother me. It, it may, I may get pissed off, but um, it's up to me how I deal with it. Right. Right. So, you know, that's, that's also an interesting take because, um, you know, some will say that, you know, that term there's, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the psychological vampires that feed on negativity and, you know, they, they thrive on, on making other people mm -hmm. feel as negative as they do. And, you know, they're like, you know, you got to remove these people from your life. You can't be around these people because they will affect you psychologically. Yes, that's true too. Um, you, you know, being able to, being able to um, understand that that language that they're using um, can be, you know, can be poisoned, but it can also be um, interpreted, you know, as illegitimate, it's not credible. But that's, that's, you know, Again, that takes being unbreakable. So you got to go through a lot of these other lessons to get there. Um, yeah, you have. And so the, how do you decrease somebody's negative? Because that's a big conversation. It's not about you. Right. Their negativity is not about you. They could be taking it out on you. Like I, that's what I The only thing I hate about Stacy is she doesn't pay attention to my rants. She'd be like, uh, and I'm pissed off. And, oh my God, this ain't going to work. And you know, I may, I may be blaming her or whatever the case is. And at first it was a shock to her when we got married, she's like, that sucked. And she goes, here's what she does now. She goes, all right, you got five minutes to go say whatever you want. Piss, kick, break, but if five minutes is up, you have to be done. Cause I don't care about what you're saying, but I'll let you listen. Yeah, I'm not going to internalize anything that you're going to say in the next five minutes, but after we get real, 
we're going to start solving it. And what I also realized is you got, sometimes you got to rant, but people can take that to heart. You're pissed off. You come home, you, you rant on your kids and they're like, I'm never going to get married. And they commit suicide or whatever the shenanigans goes on. Mm-hmm. It's because language is vital and it, it's important yet. It's up to the listener how they digest it. And Stacy just doesn't care to digest my rants. <laughs> it sucks. I like, well, I wish I could piss her off. She goes, nah, good try. <laughs> Not going to help today. <laughs> Spartan wife. Yeah. Um, so there's, okay. So there's one other thing I want to ask you. Then I want to get into what you're doing now with Unbreakable Leadership. And I want to ask you about the, the book. Um, okay. Three, three simple things. Um, so you said that in, in my time teaching boys to grow into seals, I've learned that there's something inside a man far more in need of training, far more valuable for him to learn than any tactic or a new fitness technique. After teaching young men in training to overcome impossible conditions and watching them endure terrible pain, I noticed that the key was not how hard the man was, but how malleable his mind is. How so? And you may have heard this and people that uh, do any research on the SEAL program, uh, it's always touted to be physically hard, but a very mental program. That's right. Uh, it's a, the body is breakable. I can prove it, but the mind is not. That's what the original discussion with the, 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 the editors and the publisher was this discussion about the mind. And I'm like, what's unbreakable in the physical component of everybody is the mind. And you have to keep fracturing the mind because the mind can recover. The body cannot recover from a breakage very well, but the mind the next morning, if you don't let it get down on itself, will recover and it will solve problems and it will adjust. Uh, but nobody outside the SEAL program is teaching people how to deal with what's going on internally. Mm. And uh, you know, as an instructor body, you know you can break somebody. Like Nobody can make it through SEAL training with the instructor staff. The instructor staff will kill them. Physically, they'll kill them. So we, we knew that. But what you don't want to do is do that. You want them to go to the edge where the brain is unraveling and then pull them back and teach them something about themselves. Take them to the edge where the body and the brain are really united about how shitty it is and then pull them back. So you take them to the edge and pull them back, but you have to teach them from a position of experience and knowledge and power. If you're not careful, you take them to the edge and you're one of those lone wolves, you would just break them. And how I noticed it, how the mind can be malleable and is malleable and deceptive at the same time, is I was rewarding a student for doing all the work. And I pulled him out of the boat crew during hell week. Mm-hmm. And I gave him the paddles to carry. And I said, you stay in the back with us because you're doing all the work. Let the guys in the boat carry the load. Let them take responsibility for the 
shit situation that they're in. Right. And he was, he was such a good athlete. He was way doing more than he was supposed to, which is okay. So I took him out and what his brain did was feel like it could not be a part of the solution anymore, which was inadvertent. I did not want that to happen. So I isolated him from being a part of the team. 30 minutes, he quit. And I was like, wow, what the hell? So I asked him what happened. He goes, well, you isolated me out. I thought that I wasn't a part of the team anymore, and I didn't want to be a part of a program where I couldn't help. But his brain twisted that so quickly. Wow. I'm like, what I notice about that is it's adjustable. So what's going on in the brain, if you aren't understanding it, you can break it and fracture it. But what I, and so that's what I see as malleable. It can be taught to do extraordinary things, but only from a position of somebody who has been there a thousand times. Because you get somebody to that place, and since right. the, it is malleable, they'll just give up. Like tough, tough men are ones that have been guided many, many times. Mm -hmm. And then they're out in that environment, and they're going, wow, this sucks. My leg's blown off. I've had this experience before. It's going to work out or I'm going to die. It's okay. Either one's okay. And it calms the brain down. And the, what's malleable in the brain is how hormones are trainable, how the amygdala inside of the brain, you can train to not turn on. And what I also notice about salespeople, salespeople that are great don't have an overactive amygdala. Interesting. It's like, that's war. You're in war. Like people who are really good at war, where war slows down for them and they're very clear, they have an underactive amygdala. It just doesn't fire. It's not fight or flight and making right or wrong. It's just, oh, okay, slow down. Everything's cool. But overactive amygdala makes it non-malleable. It's very rigid when the amygdala goes off and it sends out hormones and it locks the body up and mm -hmm. you only see what's going to happen is fucked up and it's just a crazy situation but all that can be trained when the body when the mind takes over anything's possible the body can do all kinds of extraordinary stuff but it all centered on how manipulatable and changeable and adjustable and malleable the what we call the brain is it's a million parts in the brain that most humans get half of a one percent of access to it the seals may get three percent that three percent is legit wow wow um so you know clearly you not only have the the mind for war um you know you have the underactive amygdala uh but you you loved it and you know now you're out of it and you're, you know, you're in the civilian world. Um, what does a warrior like you, you know, who loves war, what do you do now to keep you? Because, you know, 
you know, I could just imagine that not being able to do that, which you yearn for and loved so much, you had to keep going back again and again and again to do it. At some point you have to, you have to leave. Yeah. Right. Um, so now, you know, now you have um, unbreakable leadership, you're writing books. Are you, you know, talk, talk a little bit about that, what the transition has been like and where your passion lies now and, you know, um, what you're trained, you know, how you're training others with your, um, with, with your company and, uh, and your consulting. Uh, transition is horrific. It's terrible. Uh, cause you don't know, uh, it's like the, the bumper sticker. You don't know who you are and what to do about it. Uh, and the book wasn't intended to do anything. So when I retired in 2014, it was just in five, uh, you know, print on the printer copies for the kids. And a friend of mine read it. Okay. And he's like, dude, I thought you were retarded. I'm like, no, I'm not retarded. I can write. <laughs> and he said, that's, that's legit. We should put, make it into a book. And he talked Stacy into getting it published. Okay. And, uh, and that's a cool process, but sucked as well. Cause it's business. You know what I mean? You hear a thousand no's before you get anybody to like, ah, that sucked. Ah, forget it. I quit. You know, and that was going on for me. Yep. So, and then, uh, like, who are we? What are we going to do, honey? Cool. We were successful. I didn't die. Got the silver star. All that's cool. Nobody cares. Nobody really cares. And it's not that the civilian world doesn't care. It's just they, what value are you going to add? And I'm like, oh, juice, I'm, I'm old. What can I do? What's my skill set? Obviously, killing and shooting was a skill set. I could have gone back into security work, but I'm like, I just played in the Super Bowl. I do not want to play JV anything right now. <laughs> and uh, we, the VA didn't pay for like three months in retirement. So I didn't get any pay for three months because shit gets lost. And I don't blame them. They're just human beings. Things happen. And I, uh, but one of know this from salespeople. I, I like to be in front of people, not because I'm narcissistic, but, uh, and I don't have any problem with going cold calling somebody. So I walked into a guy named Nito Cobain, who's the chancellor for high point university. Okay. And I'd heard him speak several times in my life. And I'm like, ah, oh, he's right up the road. I'm just going to drive up and announce myself. Like, somebody cared you know what i mean so i right. walked into his office and i said my name's tom shea i'm a navy i'm a retired navy seal and i want to talk to nito about speaking as a profession and uh she goes do you have an appointment and i'm like no but he'll want to talk to me like he did i had no idea <laughs> and so he uh opens the door and he goes did i hear navy seals out here and uh, so maybe it got me in the door. So he goes, hey, I got five minutes. What do you have? And I, I'm like, I don't have a pitch. I just, I love that, that you, how you speak. I just don't know how, I'm retired now and I don't know how to make it a profession. And he goes, you never make it a profession. 
I'm like, well, are you going to be helpful? <laughs> he goes, no, I'm not going to be helpful. It's a, it's a, it's the hardest job in the world to be a paid speaker. And uh, he goes, there's three types of speakers, and he told me what they were. I won't belabor this, but uh, and uh, he goes, well, so tell me your story. So I said, well, you, you said you had five minutes, he, and he told the secretary, give me 15 minutes. Tell, call the guy. And I, I didn't prepare for that. I said, well, here's two things I've learned that uh, may be unique. And I told him the two things. And he goes, can you come in two weeks and talk to the parents weekend? I'm like, sure, I'd love to. And he goes, okay, so uh, I'm not going to pay you. I'm just going to give you the experience of coming up here. But we'll put you in a hotel. So okay. I went up there and gave one speech. And uh, I'm an interactive speaker. Okay. I kind of have a go by. Now I've done over 400 and uh, all from that. And he said, uh, after that, he came to the, at the end at the back. I could see him coming in and he listened to the end. And I was having an interaction with a woman. She cried. And uh, he caught me at the end. He goes, Can you do this tomorrow morning? I'm like, Why? He goes, Half the we had to kick out 300 people because we didn't have a place big enough. Wow. Because they heard you were speaking and they wanted to come in, but we didn't have, we didn't, none of our speakers ever demand a big crowd. So we're going to put you in a bigger stadium or we're going to put you in like a, a big Coliseum thing. So the next morning there was like a thousand people. Jesus. And uh, I had a, two interactions that were pretty profound with people there. He goes, hey, can you talk to the, all the teams? And then at the end, he gave me the grace of his time. He goes, here's what I recommend that you do. Uh, you, you fill a niche. You're an interactive speaker. There's maybe 2% of the speakers that are interactive. He goes, I, don't, I hate to interact because they could ask me a question that I could flop on. I do a program speech. It's highly exciting. I'm a motivational speaker, and I get paid like $80,000 a speech. And but you're interactive mm. and if you can, if you have the bandwidth to do it, you can make a lot of money. And I told him that I'd had written, a, I was in the process of getting a book published and I sent him the book unbreakable. And he said, yeah, you need to get on the road and do that. Like, can you give me any solutions of how to do it? And he goes, nope. <laughs> it wouldn't help. If I, I can't tell another person what to do. You just figure it out. If you're committed, you'll figure it out. If not, and that was the, the genesis of the rest of the, uh, so we, I spent three years doing keynote speeches, and I, I called it uh, cocaine. It was exciting. I needed another one. It wasn't going to go anywhere. I needed another one. It didn't wow. go anywhere. I'm like, the money was wonderful. I mean, we made a lot of digits, and, uh, but it, I didn't find it to be uh, thoroughly rewarding, okay. and I was gone a lot. I'm like, shit, I'm in the teams again. I'm like, I don't want to live that life. Okay. One of the guys had been begging me to teach him uh, what I had learned about leadership. Okay. And uh, I'm like, okay, so let me put a curriculum together, but I'm going to put it together, but you have to do it. We're going to meet. So for the next three years, I put, uh, I was training individuals at the time. So it was a curriculum that's now in the book, three simple things. Okay. So when you read three simple things, it's a curriculum I designed that used to take a year to get one person through. And I, we trained 190 
in that individual effort. Okay. And uh, like I say it now, it's, it was uh, about a, it was a hundred thousand a person took a year. We met nine times over that year period of time okay. to grow to two X your life in the five areas that we've talked about your health, your inability to learn, your ability to derive value or money. Mm -hmm. So grow your business by 2X, grow your health by 2X, grow your relationships by 2X and grow your spiritual uh, access to the world by 2X measured by them. So all the people that we put through training 2X their life, which I thought I was gonna name the program 2X. But uh, uh, I had trained a, uh, my current partner he went through the training and he's like, Hey, I want, I want to be on the crew teaching people this. So I developed a train the trainer program to teach him. Okay. And we just completed that right when COVID hit and I'm like, well, this sucks. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Good. It feels like war just again, the same, same thing. And uh, so we changed, we pivoted the moment we realized that the, the lifestyle that we had before wasn't, was not going to happen. Like the world had changed, mm -hmm. but we did the opposite of what everybody else did. Everybody else shut down. We went live. And, uh, I said, what's the hardest thing that we can do have seminars. Yeah. And so we held, uh, six seminars last year. And, uh, so we took a year long training, condensed it I, to me. It's 10 times better now because the interactivity of having 50 people in a room going through the same experience, even though it's sometimes emotional for the men and the women mm -hmm. and uh, to canvas three, four topics, uh, focus, emotional mastery, mentorship and failing. So it's a first weekend. There's two separate weekends. The first weekend uh, goes into uh, focus and emotional mastery. And it's, I call it brutal. We break every emotional issue down for men, women, whoever comes, CEOs, you're going to have, we're going to deal with this shit right now. And uh, the breakthrough level is tremendous. And uh, so we trained 200 people last year. And this year, uh, the unbreakable leadership training level one and level two, we started in February and we have eight, uh, either in Texas or here. So eight separate dates that we're doing the training. And you're doing these live face to face live. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah. Because there's, uh, there are people that aren't true believers and the government knows what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> right. And, uh, but, you know, the virus, everybody's going to get the virus. I'm sad to say I'm, that's the deal. And uh, But people need human interaction to grow. Virtual environment is going to kill people. Yeah. And I, I knew that that was coming. Like I'd learned isolation is bad. And all the people that came have had tremendous upsides to it. And uh, But it culminates in the 24-hour challenge, which was lesson three of the 13 lessons. Everybody has to come and walk for 24 hours with us. Wow. That they actually love that more than the training because you get to see life play out in front of you in 24 hours. Amazing. Yep. Amazing. And what that's it, what we're doing. Well, that's, I mean, it, it you've made it, I mean, it, it clearly, it must've sucked um, transitioning from someone 
who were so highly attuned to the to the battlefield and loving it, loving it, and then having to come back to this, right? But no, I what sucked is I didn't know how to find what Stacy calls hunting dragons. So I found a way to hunt dragons in the teams. You know what I mean? <laughs> but okay. what I found yeah. on the outside is it feels the same to me. I found another way to engage all my, you know, find somebody to connect with, find a teammate, do something very challenging with a teammate, stay healthy, keep eager to learn new things, do business that you value, which is what the teams were for me. Surround yourself with at least five people that you would die for, which I call relationships. And know that you create ripples, which is spirituality. And uh, I just found a way to replace the war with civilian shit. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought this year would have happened? So it was war. So I'm like, dude, I know what's going on now. People are panicking. Just get everybody together and let's let's solve this. Whatever people want to solve, let's solve it. And how? And and three simple things. So three simple things talks about the, you know, the five, um, I think you call them the pyramids. Um, but what, what is three simple, if you could summarize that and, you know, what yeah. will people get out of that book? Well, so the book, three simple things leading during chaos is the process and method that I have created with help. It wasn't just me mm -hmm. uh, to take people from, I call zero to 200% and by using a process. Okay. The process solves two issues. What I call a six hour non-negotiable baseline. Okay. That the only thing that you need to do on a day-to-day -day basis is master six hours of your day by doing three simple things per pyramid that accumulate to six hours. Okay. The three simple things are generally offense, defense, and strategic. So you, in business, which is, you'll understand this very quickly, you have to spend an hour finding new clients or selling or pitching then you have to spend a dedicated hour dealing with existing clients. Mm -hmm. Then you have to think strategically for an hour. Where's all this playing out? How are we going to deal? Where's the business going to be in five years? Where do I want to be in five years? So those three simple things are simple, but very, very difficult to do. What people in business don't do is offense. That's why they need salespeople, the CEO and everybody in the company has to do three simple things for the business. The receptionist has to be offensive. The receptionist has to deal with existing clients. The receptionist has to be brought into strategy. When a company does that, 2X happens quickly because wow. companies are inefficient. A nine to five job is inefficient, horribly inefficient because you only get three hours of work from them anyway. Right. So when everybody's on point, success is simple. And then health is three simple things. But oddly enough, it's you have to work out for an hour a day. 
You have to stretch for 20 minutes and you have to drink 10 glasses of water. Simple, but hard to do. What is possible when you do those three simple things in the physical pyramid is you can run an ultra marathon from never running before. Because I've seen it. I've seen people never run to run an ultra marathon in six months. And everybody says it's not possible. I don't care. I've seen it now. Right. And 60 people have run ultra marathons at a I don't intend them to run. They just like, it has, you have to pick a goal as well. That's impossible. Okay. So if, that's right. If you've already done it, I'm not interested. Like I want to 10% my business, not interested. You're going to do that just by breathing. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I, it has to be scary when you sign the line that is that formula that we create, you have to be frightened and not know if it's going to work out. Well, I don't know how it's going to work out. Good. Then we have a chance. And, uh, but the, the, the referral side of the, the business is the relationship side. And I had not intended that when I retired Okay. and I'm not a relationship coach, but I think relationships are everything. Team is everything. How you deal with somebody else other than you is probably more important than how you deal with yourself. In teaching relationship, the three simple things are so freaking hard to do that I've never had anybody do them 21 days straight, the first attempt. So right. most CEOs that go through training take three months to do these things I'm about ready to describe. You have to, whether you're married, whether you're in love or not, somebody significant in your life you have to engage every day that ends in why so that's every day could be your son could be your lover whatever could be your dad if that's the only person left that you love mm -hmm. uh so the first 10 minutes is a 30 minute exercise and it's lethal when you can do it you are lethal as a human being you have to spend 10 minutes listening to what the other person is committed to achieving no drama, no woe is me, no bitterness, no anger. You have to create in the other person them sharing what they're committed to. And you have to listen for 10 minutes. I've never known a man be capable of doing that with a woman. They don't. Mm -hmm. They just don't spend any time listening to their wife, which was tragic. Then you have to speak for 10 minutes what you're committed to doing that day, if that's all you get out. Hey, I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to make the bed, whatever, something that you're committed, wildly committed to achieving that day. And then you have to have 10 minutes of intimacy. It could be virtual because, you know, the world of porn has figured out virtual intimacy, whatever, whatever intimacy would be, even if it's male to male acknowledgement is intimacy. Mm -hmm. you know, me thanking you is intimacy at a certain level, but you have to spend 10 minutes having an intimate interaction with that person. Gotcha. You are lethal. Like that's probably the most important part of the training that we do because it feeds all the other aspects of it. Males that don't have that at home are not functionally good at work. You can't replace it with running more. You can't replace it with working out more when you get it at home. And it's those three things. That's the only three things that matter salesmen when they get it are lethal 
Like I can hear a no. I don't give a shit. I heard a yes from my wife or my lover, whoever. It doesn't have to be your wife, but somebody who you're intimate with and related to. And that's at the simple level. And then ends up three simple things per five pyramids ends up being a six hour day. If you can achieve a six hour day, you are incredible. And that's the premise of the book, Three Simple Things, how you deal with shit and chaos. How do you lead yourself through the chaos? And it's, it's just hard. It's very hard to do. But people are awake for 24 hours sometimes. And they can't even do simple shit. They just waste their time. <laughs> like salesmen are great at notorious at wasting time. Yeah. Unless they're lethal. And then they're very difficult. They're just on point. Okay, I'm done. I've got all my calls in. I close deals. Absolutely. Like when you get older, you're like, I'm, I'm not interested in making cold calls. I do things on point. <laughs> I know it works. I'm not going to spend my whole day figuring this out. Right. I'm going to go right now and attack this thing. That's right. You're like a sniper at that point. Yeah. I'll I tell you what, Tom, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, you know, I, I got to thank you so much for sharing. Once again, you're very good at p giving people insight into not you don't talk in platitudes you're not talking you know you're 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 sharing from the heart from the gut you you talk you know you talk straight and it resonates it's powerful um where so i mean i can't wait to read uh three simple things now that i've read unbreakable leadership but i've got to tell everyone out there you have to read unbreakable leadership um i'm sorry unbreakable mm -hmm. you've got to read unbreakable um you know it it is because we've only covered some of it. There's so much more that will truly change your life. And there's so much more to internal dialogue that we couldn't even get into. But as you said in the beginning, it's not an easy thing to cover. Although you gave it a great, you've certainly learned how to give a good explanation for internal dialogue, but there's so much in the book because if you can master internal dialogue, I agree with you so much. Having read your book, you will become unbreakable and uh so i can't wait to i can't wait to read three simple things where can our audience find out more about what you're up to and uh learn more about uh you know your companies your books this kind of thing uh unbreakableleadership.com uh like we're we produce events we're an event production company about you know, humans being the best version of themselves and that's my partnership with brock who's the other trainer, that's the only thing I'm interested in is okay. people being the best version of themselves. And it can be had, it can be had. And we're on social media and the same thing, Tom Shea on social media or Unbreakable Leadership, we're all over that. I don't always do that. The people that we hire do that just so that I'm very clear that, you know, sometimes it won't be me who's interacting. And uh, but uh, unbreakable leadership is the, the like the, the the sniper shot where we interact with you there. Okay. We have events beginning in January, and uh, uh, if you're interested in being that person that you've wanted to be, let's do it. And uh, I welcome it. Powerful stuff, man. Powerful stuff. Tom, thank you so much for being on the Alpha Human Podcast. It was an absolute honor. Thank you so much for your service. And I wish you tremendous success uh, with what you're doing. Those that get a chance to work with you consider themselves lucky. Uh, this is, you know, this is powerful stuff. 
and uh, you know, you certainly, uh, you certainly come across as someone who can change people's lives, not with, not with, um, not with hokum, not with, uh, you know, uh, uh, platitudes and, uh, you know, hope and belief, but with actual true to life, solid knowledge and strategies. Uh, if you can survive what you survived and be this successful and thrive and have an incredible marriage with an incredible woman and you got your family, you made it back home. She said to you over and over again, she said, um, she said, don't fear, fear dying. You. It makes you weak. Fight your way back to us. And you did. So yes. yep. anyone who could pull off what you pulled off is worth uh, learning from. So thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. It's been great. Thanks, sir. Okay, take care, Tom.